10, 9, ignition sequence start, 6. Hello, and welcome to this special episode of Launchpad, Rocket Pools, Rocket Fuels interview series with prominent members of the Rocket Pool community, where we have lively discussions about their crypto journey and the special things that they want to share with the community as a whole. Today's guest is Joe, who is a developer with Rocket Pool. Um, Joe works on the Smart Node stack and a lot of other things. You might also know Joe as the person who's developing the Proteus, which is a home staking uh, machine that um, he's selling to people in the community and and. Uh, wider than that too. So Joe, um, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and then we can start talking? Yeah, I'm pretty well doxxed at this point, so I don't have much of an issue saying my name. I'm Joe Clappus. Hi guys. Um, I, for the last, I would say year and a half or so, have been kind of working as the smart node developer for Rocket Pool. I'm, I'm that weird liaison between the contract side and the user side because users don't interact with the contracts directly. So uh, my my job is mostly to shepherd user feedback and try to make the uh, the node operator experience, the user experience, just that much easier. Kind of take feedback, integrate ideas, and at the same time, work with the development team to uh, make sure that it does everything it needs to do from the contract execution standpoint too, or at least from uh, accessing those contracts. So like when we have major hard forks like Redstone or the upcoming Atlas or stuff, I'm also responsible for making sure the smart node can work with those properly, that kind of thing. Thank you so much for that. So um, why don't we start a little bit about like your background, what you're comfortable talking about and like your early um, like foray into the Cryptoverse. Sure. Uh, we so how far back do you want to go? Let me as ask. far back as you're comfortable going. I can. So the easiest thing to do is to tell you the entire story, I guess, of how I got here from the very beginning. Um, and it, it is a long story, but we've got some time, right? We have some time. We have some time. So for those of you who are interested in how all of this went down, I will go back from the beginning and talk about some of this stuff. So let me. Uh, I'll kind of do a little bit of this on the fly, but let me give you uh, the the base idea of where all of this went down. So first things first, uh, my dad used to work for uh, Hughes Aerospace and it was responsible for doing some of the software on the Hubble telescope. So he was very big into uh, working with like the NASA scene and the space scene. And he, he was big on like, general physics and stuff. I mean, he graduated with a PhD uh, in physics. And so when he was raising me, we would talk a lot about that kind of stuff. We would talk about space, we would talk about science, we would talk about all this good stuff. So anecdotally, every year we get together for Thanksgiving. And when we get together, uh, my wife and my mom will kind of go off into one side and talk about typical, well, I'll say typical stuff. And then my dad and I go to another corner and we talk about the latest that comes out of CERN and mm. particle theory and quantum mechanics and things like that, just because that's kind of how we do. Uh, so early on, I was trying to figure out kind of what I wanted to do to sort of leave my mark, right? Mm. As something to, to sort of stand out and be significant and say, I have contributed to society thusly because uh, that inspired me when we were kind of talking about one of these things during Thanksgiving. And this is a while ago. It was like 10 or 12 years ago or something. He inspired me by 
giving me essentially a, a prop, giving me something as a constant reminder of what at least humanity can achieve. And while I'm not doing anything nearly as uh, big in scale as this, this does serve as a nice reminder. So here's something that he uh, was able to acquire and now has passed it down to me. This is uh, specifically known as a member of the seatbelt uh, seatbelt basalt family. So if you go to Wikipedia and look up seatbelt basalt, you'll see this. But in a nutshell, this is a moon rock. This is something that wow. uh, they brought back from, uh, it's either Apollo uh, 12 or 15. I can't remember which one it was. I have That's to ask amazing. How do you yeah, I've got, a, I've got a, a little chunk of the moon right here, essentially. Where did? The, how did you get that? Um, it's a long story, and it's probably something that I should not go into in such a public forum as this, uh, because, well, I don't know if we we actually have the, the capacity or the time to talk about it, but suffice it to say, uh, this sits on my desk right underneath my monitor, and I get to stare at that right next to this uh, little, like, Lego Apollo moon lander deal. Lovely. That's so there cool. You go. It sits right there. Yeah. And it is a reminder that uh, at the end of the day, if you kind of like put your mind to it and you have sufficient determination, you can accomplish what was previously thought to be impossible. So that it, it, not, not just to compare myself uh, as a smart node developer to the Apollo program by any means, but that is sort of one of the things that kicked off this whole agenda, right? So yes, so, uh, the, for the whole story, and we're going back from the beginning, those have sat at my desk for over 10 years now and just Amazing. serve as this constant sort of source of motivation. So that. fast forward uh, a couple of years, and I still have these things at my desk, and I'm still using them to think about, okay, you know, what do I want to kind of do with myself that makes a difference? And I start getting very into this whole energy efficiency thing. That's mm -hmm. one of the things that comes out of, like, there's a lot going on with climate change. There's a lot of uh, issues with respect to using fossil fuels to power your house and stuff like that. And so I started getting... Sorry, just before you carry on, what, what, like, what time period are we talking about? Like, how long ago was this? Uh, so this was, I would probably put this in the, like, 2014, 2015 okay. era, something like that, 2016. Yeah. So uh, about, like, six to eight years ago is, sure. is when this is generally happening. I like your orange drink. You didn't really drink my Rocket Pool branded yeah. water there, yes. Love it. Everything must be orange. Uh, so, yeah, about that time... I'm using this and I'm thinking it's still early enough in my career that I'm like, I, I've got my whole life ahead of me. What can I do with this kind of stuff? But I get very into the energy efficiency thing. And I start looking at the options that are out there as far as what we can do to uh, lower our carbon footprint as home users, essentially. There's a, there's a lot of uh, stuff to, to unpeel back in the the whole climate change discussion, and this mm -hmm. is not the forum for it, but suffice to say, I want to see, like, how can I do my part? Yeah. So I started looking into, for example, solar panels on my roof. I started looking into switching my appliances over to electric to use the solar panels instead of, uh, like, gas appliances. Mm -hmm. I looked into doing an electric car instead of getting, uh, like, a traditional gas car or even a hybrid or something like that. And so that actually went pretty well. After doing a lot of ex exploration into that space and seeing... Uh, what I could do, I found that there were a lot of things I could do, but primarily what it came down to was generating my own electricity and making everything run off that electricity. It was the best thing that I could have done. Nice. And so I did a lot of that kind of stuff. Uh, and when I was looking at how to size the solar panels for the house, uh, we, we have an interesting conversation there because there's a, well, let me relate this to, to staking so you understand where I'm coming from. 
during the typical Thanksgiving dinner that year, when I was doing this exploration, uh, my dad and I were discussing the exciting new field, new field, so to speak, of uh, quantum computing. And this is a thing that, I mean, that's, that's right up the alley for us. But what was interesting in particular was I had kind of established myself as a software engineer at that point. Yeah, uh, that's, that's basically what I wanted to do. I find it uh, very exciting and interesting and productive to build software systems. So uh, he was telling me about this new thing that Microsoft had come out with. Uh, it was called Q-Sharp or the Quantum Development Kit, and Q-Sharp was the language for it. And it was essentially a, a software platform written in .NET, which is the framework that C-Sharp uses, which is my favorite language. I will openly admit that. Come fight me in the comments. Um and this was the first time he had seen a software system like that maintained by a large kind of company, not just a research institute or a university or something that purported to enable developers to write code and execute code and simulate code for quantum computers. And I thought this was very interesting. So I looked into this whole process and got pretty excited by it and thought that there was definitely a there, there, you know, paradigm change. This is going to change the game and that kind of stuff. Uh, and I built myself a quantum simulator, which was this this lovely little box with like, it didn't have a GPU in it or anything. It was just this lovely little computation machine I had in my basement that I could use for noodling around with this toolkit and sort of seeing what was there. And I learned very early on that with a quantum simulator, with a machine that tries to simulate a quantum machine, every single qubit you add, every additional bit in the quantum machine doubles the RAM requirement. Hmm. So in order to do anything meaningful, you need to have a lot of RAM. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is, I promise we're going to relate this back. This actually has some use here. I believe you. Yeah. So it wasn't too long before my experimentation led to this wonderful situation where I had a powerful machine with six graphics cards hanging out the back of it <laughs> because each of the graphics cards gave me an additional four gigabytes of RAM. Yeah. And I need a lot of RAM to simulate things that were meaningful. In particular, I needed like 33 or 34 qubits worth, and I just didn't have the capacity to do it at the time. And I was out of RAM slots. Like I had literally taken up all of the DIMMs in this machine and was thinking, I need more RAM. And I basically need more processing power too. I mean, throwing more RAM is helpful, but it won't make it go any faster. So what can I do with this? Yeah. So I basically made a machine that had a bunch of graphics cards hanging out the back that were used for computing quantum systems. Uh, I was working on at the time with my company, I was working on like a CUDA simulator so that I could run quantum simulations on the graphics cards and stuff to make it go faster. And as those of you who have been around the Ethereum ecosystem for a long time know, having a big machine with a bunch of graphics cards sticking out the back is basically a mining rig. And at the time I hadn't discovered mining or anything like that. I just had this machine. And this machine pulled a lot of power. In fact, mm -hmm. it pulled, uh, because it was on almost like 24-7 doing these number crunching, like these really hard problems, it would take a couple of days to simulate some of these problems for large wow. uh, for, for large quantum simulations. It would pull about as much power as the house did. Mm -hmm. So when I was sizing my solar panel array, one of the things I had to consider was we want to get cars, electric cars, we want to power them with that. We want to move a lot of our appliances over. And I've got this quantum simulator in the basement that pulls about as much as the house does. So basically, I need three houses worth of solar panels. That's and that's what we ended up sizing. The, the array we have is 14 kilowatts, which is absurd. It's like 48 yeah. panels. But we ended up sizing it for all of that stuff. Uh, and then around 2018, around that era, I showed this to uh, my bosses 
it, at, it, at back at uh, MITRE, which was my job in a previous life before I worked for Rocket Pool. And I said, hey, I'm doing this cool stuff with uh, quantum computing, and I've got this lovely little rig that kind of acts as this quantum simulator, and I can number crunch really hard problems in uh, however long, like two or three days. And sometimes yeah. it would be faster if it was a smaller problem or something like that. But that worked out uh, pretty well, and they thought that was interesting, and they were excited about it, and they thought it was kind of neat, whatever. And then six months went by, and eventually uh, I realized like I didn't have the cycles to keep noodling with this in my basement, so I shut the whole thing down. I was like, okay, yeah. we're done with this. So basically, I've, I've gotten what I need out of it. It's good. And I was thinking about piecing it out, essentially, and selling it off so that because at the time, people were kind of interested in getting all these graphics cards. This is like 2017, 2018, and the 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 boom of 2018 was just starting. So graphics cards were pretty exciting as a commodity. And I figured I might as well take advantage of that and pawn off some of the, I had 1080s, I think, or 1070s. I had a bunch of 1070s. And I made it a little bit of a profit selling that stuff, but whatever. Uh, at, at the end of that year, the end of 2018, my bosses at MITRE came back and said, we want you to start exploring this quantum landscape again and see what there is from a software perspective. And that is a whole other can of worms, my whole like tenure at MITRE being a quantum engineer and stuff like that. But it did bring me back to this notion of this machine, this, uh, this staking system that I had built. And after looking at some of the other solutions that were out there at the time, which is like six months after I stopped playing with this stuff, I found that none of them really did the same kind of thing I was doing with CUDA, with graphics cards. They were all very simple, like run this on your laptop kind of stuff, but they had been optimized to the point where it wasn't actually that bad to do so. Mm -hmm. And the idea was you wouldn't simulate large circuits like I was doing. You'd simulate small ones for proof of concept, and then you'd throw them at the real hardware, which is like IBM's machines, which yeah. is infinitely faster than what we have now so i was like okay okay there might be something to this so i started playing with that but in the meantime while that was going on i was still thinking about this rig that i had in my basement that had been like partially pieced out and what i could actually do with it now because it's been sitting there doing nothing uh through some crazy cosmic happenstance I was introduced to the Ethereum staking community around that time and started getting into it a little bit and seeing what I could do. Uh, and it dawned on me that the machine that I had in my basement was actually not a bad uh, staking rig. It's not yeah. ideal, but it's not bad. And I tried retrofitting that and looking for like open source staking so or excuse me, uh, mining software and uh, trying to essentially optimize the graphics cards that I did have that were left over and try to make some use out of them with this whole Ethereum thing that was going on back then before I really knew much about the, the landscape. And after a couple of months of just kind of tinkering on and off, and there wasn't a lot of hobby time back then, not like there is now, but uh, it's eventually got to the point where I was successfully mining with this thing. It's just like two or three graphics cards or whatever I happened to have left. But I thought it was kind of addicting at that point. Yeah. Like I, I've got this machine that's, provisionally has the capacity for more graphics cards. I know I was able to run six off of it. How far can I take this? And more importantly, uh, how far can I take this while you know, maintaining optimal efficiency is, is yeah. how good can I make this kind of thing? So I spent a lot of time from like the late 2019 to 2020 period, essentially converting my quantum simulator into a profession, professional, into a purpose-built mining rig, shall we say. I think... And that's ended up, uh, at the end of the day, I was able to attach 13 
graphics cards to it. Uh, they were <laughs> 1660 Supers, which was one of the most efficient cards you could get at the time. Uh, and they were all kind of, it was this open air rig and I had them all hanging essentially like a clothesline. They're all hanging from zip ties at the bottom of this thing, just kind of casually running. And I had them in sort of a staggered configuration, but I was able to get 13 on there without the bios complaining. And it took a lot of finagling and tweaking to get there, but we did. Uh, yeah. And that's when the real experimentation started. And I realized that there were kind of like two flavors of 1660 Super, and it depends on who manufactured the RAM. Like Samsung would manufacture certain RAM chips, and then they ran out because of the chip shortage or whatever, and they would use Micron instead. And the Samsung cards were amazing overclockers. You could undervolt them like half the power they were supposed to run, and they would still perform beautifully and perfectly. Wow. The Micron ones, not so much. Hmm. Uh, they they definitely needed a little bit more voltage, a little bit more love to work properly. But this kind of became, uh, I wouldn't say an obsession, but it was definitely a, a strong hobby. Something that I yeah. was doing a lot and spending a lot of time on was optimizing and tweaking and constantly adjusting and trying to improve the efficiency of the staking rig. And at one point I had it down to like, I was basically using 800 watts for 13 graphics cards, which was well, really, how? really good. Yeah. By doing lots and lots of this kind of underclocking and undervolting and tweaking amazing. and stuff. It was, it was pretty impressive i was quite happy with yeah. that the 1660 super in particular was an amazing mm -hmm. platform for this because it doesn't have any ray tracing like rtx had just come out but it doesn't have any of that uh, i wasn't hooking up any of the graphics adapters i was running on linux and so i had good fine control over all of the driver details and stuff and it, it ended up working out so it was it was quite efficient and i was happy with it and it was still pulling as much as the house was because we weren't driving anywhere because covid was a thing now mm -hmm. uh, but it's I was I was happy. I was comfortable with it. It was good. So just to stop you for a second, what sure. kind of like, who were you talking to about this at the time? Like when you were doing this, like were you just doing it on your own or were you like tapping into communities? Like how was that all working out for you? I was mostly doing it on my own, although I did have some contact with a little bit of the like Ethereum staking communities. Like uh, there's a subreddit ETH staker and mm -hmm. I would read about that. I would kind of lurk along and contribute where I could. I had a different name at the time uh, than JCRTP. That was something I came up with uh, for Rocket Pool specifically, but I would talk a little bit. I was mostly in receive mode. I was just taking ideas, taking feedback. Uh, there was a, a Bitcoin mining forum. I don't remember. It, was, um, it wasn't just Bitcoin. It was like all of the, the GP mining in general and stuff. And I would talk on there a little bit and I would try to get feedback about uh, like my current setup and anything I could do to improve from people that had been doing this a lot longer than I had. Yeah. And the, the general sense I got was there wasn't a lot of people that were so interested in trying to optimize. It was more like set it and forget it. Like, okay, yeah. it's working. Don't touch it. Leave it alone. That kind of thing. But there were a handful of people that were really interested in the, the technical aspect and trying to squeeze every possible ounce of performance out of these things. Something like that. So would you say this was more about optimizing staking rather than like a passion for cryptocurrency? Like that's what it Oh yeah, absolutely. Like. Yeah, absolutely. This is like just... the, the fact that it paid for itself was ancillary. That didn't have anything yeah. to do with like I wasn't doing this for profit as a motivation. Yeah. I was doing this to try and squeeze the most possible performance per watt out of this machine. That's that was the the main goal entirely. So was there was... ever a point when you said it's done now, or is would that still be happening now if we were still on proof of work? Uh if we were still in proof of work, I would be in trouble because I sold it. 
a long okay. time ago. We'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, this yeah. part of the story. That's uh, but if proof of stake didn't exist at all, then I'm sure I would still be down there tweaking. And at this point, it would probably be like uh, getting some mining specific cards and seeing how well they could do versus the 1660 supers that I had right now. But I would continue the eternal approach of trying to squeeze every possible uh, piece of performance per watt out of these things, I would say. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so it's 2020. There's a pandemic. You're locked down. You're spending time in the basement, like, like tinkering with your... Yeah, so it's about rig. 2020. And yeah. uh, I had been mining for a while with these. And there was a time where nobody was... Like, there's this lovely little window from the end of 2018 to the beginning of 2020 or something yeah. where nobody was mining. Like, Ethereum yeah. was dead. Nobody cares. It's fine, whatever. And so I was generating a lot with this I thing. Bet. Over those two years or something, I had about 13 or 14 Ether mined. Nice. And I was, this is at this point, like at the end of 2020 or whatever, not the, not at the end, uh, at the like the beginning slash middle of 2020, mm. I was looking and saying, okay, I got a lot of this stuff. What can I do with it? Right. Basically like what, and this is where I started getting interested in uh, the, the whole crypto landscape. So it wasn't just like Ethereum as a, a vector for converting electricity into profit. Mm. It was this whole like actual smart contract ecosystem and what can be done with that and that kind of thing. So that's where I started my exploration. I didn't really look much into it until that point. Yeah. So I started looking into things like DeFi, uh, things like, you know, hardware wallets and um, smart contract wallets in particular, things like Argent, for example, and that kind of stuff. Seeing like, okay, we have this interesting sort of world computer. What can we do with it? And more importantly, I've got a decent little chunk of this. What can I do with that? And as I was exploring along, I discovered uh, through, I think, the ETH Staker forum, I discovered this idea of this weird protocol coming out that would let you run this whole proof of stake, which is like the next generation for proof of work or whatever. It's going to take over. And let's do it with 16 Ether instead of 32, because 32 is way out of my price range. But uh, 16 was pretty close to what I had. I had like 14 yeah. at the time. It was this thing called Rocket Pool, and it was supposed to like change the game or whatever. I was like, okay, I mean, I'll take a look and see what was going on. And so I did. I took a look at the the protocol. I took a look at the software. I went onto the Discord and started asking around. And what I found was the proof of stake system as it was constructed, like as we know it today, essentially, mm -hmm. after it had gone through the revamp uh, back in 2018, the proof of stake uh, system was very, very power efficient while still providing security. And naturally, me being the, the hunter of efficiency, I said, okay, just how efficient is it? And mm -hmm. uh, how low can I take this? So I tried running. I basically turned off my mining rig. I sold all the equipment for that. Uh, eventually, I didn't quite do it then, but I turned yeah. off my mining rig at that time. And I threw some staking software on there on uh, Go was it Gorilla? I think it was Gorilla at the time. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what the very first test I did. I think this was Piermont back in the day, or Madala perhaps, but I believe yeah, they were all Mad Gorilla. Madasha. Yeah, something like yeah. that. It was it was way 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 early, right? Yeah. And I uh, essentially turned my mining rig into a, a staking platform from this. And what I found was okay, computation doesn't exist. This is super super easy from a computation perspective. Don't need any of these graphics cards. Storage is a huge problem. I do need storage because at the time I had like a 16 gigabyte flash card <laughs> or something. So my storage because, you know, you don't need any for my mining. But I do need a lot of storage. So I need to invest in a solid state and throw that in one of the, the M2 slots and that kind of stuff. So there was a bit of a, a learning adjustment as I realized the requirements had changed. Yeah. And then 
Uh, that's worked out well enough, but I realized I had all this horsepower doing nothing. Like mm-hmm. the, the staking seam, essentially, the staking requirements couldn't leverage any of this super efficient hardware that I had built, or at least couldn't do anything productive with it beyond what it already had. And so I was like, we need a system that draws lower power. How low can I take this? And so I was playing with uh, like, at the time they were they were not called Nooks yet, at least not the ones that I had. Uh, they were thin clients and zero clients. And we used them in Miter to act as sort of like remote endpoints. So you could basically have this tiny little box you'd plug into your monitor and all you did was remote desktop into another more powerful machine or a virtual machine or whatever. Yeah. And so this little thin client would basically act as your liaison back and forth. And I got one of those and I tried that and it was better. I pulled like 30 watts or something, uh, but 30 was still too much. And I was like, I want to see how low I can take this because this is my obsession. Long story short, to suffice to say, I was able to get Lighthouse and Geth, which uh, at the time when I was doing this, there were only two... Uh, consensus clients supported Lighthouse and Prism, and Geth was the only execution client, but they didn't even have those names yet. It was ETH1 and ETH2 back then. But I was able to get Lighthouse and Geth running on this. Is that a Raspberry Pi? This is a Raspberry Pi. Yeah. Th- this is the Raspberry Pi. Those yeah. of you who have been paying attention saw the picture of this in my garden being powered by a banana or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this is the one. This is that very Raspberry Pi. And I was able to successfully stake, at least according to the Beacon Chain website, uh, shout out to Buddha, I was able to successfully stake on the testnet with this thing using five watts of power. And I was able to uh, take like a uh, USB power bank, like those little brick things with the spare batteries that you use for cell phones or whatever, and plug it into this. And because this is powered by USB, and it only uses five watts, which is what that thing outputs. I was able to take this outside and validate in my garden, which I thought was kind of a fun thing. It was a very stark contrast to this bulky open air 13 GPU mining rig versus this guy. Yeah. And it was it was a big enough like kind of revelation in, in doing that, just this magical transformation uh, that I think it really helped catalyze the message of this is somewhere I think I can contribute. This is a fledgling field. It's just coming out there. It's still kind of underground. I bet I can make this an actual thing and start working on this and doing this This as like an actual real-time job. So one of the major problems I faced was Lighthouse was still a little too heavy for this on mainnet specifically. When I tried taking this and running it on mainnet, what I found was this did not have the horsepower at the time to uh, stake successfully, shall we say. Um, it, it could do okay, but it wasn't perfect. It was it was late. It was missing a lot of stuff. Uh, attestations were kind of like coming in and I was getting partial credit for them. So it wasn't good enough, essentially. And that's where I was looking and seeing, can I use uh, a better client than what we have right now? And that's where I discovered Nimbus. And Nimbus is a consensus client that is specifically aimed at low power hardware like this or like cell phones, for example, or anything. And I checked out what Nimbus would need in order to work with the Rockable stack and found that it was a non-trivial addition. So I spent a lot of my free time at this point, because I was still working uh, for MITRE, I wasn't working for Rockable yet, but I spent a lot of my free time essentially uh, adding both Teku and Nimbus to the list of clients that the Rockable smart node, uh, which is our sort of like middle and software, 
supported. So instead of just doing Prism and Lighthouse, now it did all four. And those were the four major uh, clients that were, I guess we'll call it since the, the release of the Beacon Chain, they were officially sort of endorsed. Yeah. That was interesting because that took a lot of time to kind of dig into the smart note stack. And I had never played with Go as a language before. So it was afraid to both learning Go, learning the ecosystem around Go, uh, and learning the smart note stack in particular and how it was engineered and how you kind of make do things and how to introduce new clients and all that kind of stuff. So th that was basically like diving in head first. You know, there was no baby steps. Let's do this little pull request here and there. It was just straight up. I want Nimbus to work on my Raspberry Pi and I'm not going to stop until it does. And that's that's kind of where we started taking things. That went into this whole notion of uh, unofficial at the time support uh, for Rocketpool on ARM, ARM platforms. Mm-hmm of which there were very few, but they did exist out there. It was mostly like Pi and uh, Apple M1 users, pretty much. Uh, but I just kind of kept at it. So I started with this whole like introducing clients and finally I could run the smart node on my Raspberry Pi. I've got an ARM system, life is good. And then the question becomes kind of like, well, there are other issues that are making it a little less efficient and that are kind of taking up space. Like let's fix those two. Okay, there are a few more things. Let's fix those two. And it, it just sort of came became this thing where I kept contributing and contributing. And eventually, uh, Dave pulled me aside in, in the Discord DMs and said, you've been contributing a lot. We need to expand the team. Do you want to work on the smart note like full time? And that was that was kind of the 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 moment where I realized like this could be potentially the thing that I do, right? Mm -hmm. Going back to this this moon rock example. This yeah. could be the thing that I I may not be able to send astronauts to the moon, but I might be able to actually significantly impact the landscape of Ethereum staking, which if it does what they claim that it can do, is supposed to either augment or entirely replace the the financial sector with these like these payments and, and being a payment processor in general. It could be a big thing. Mm -hmm. And I could be the guy that contributes this whole like load power. Uh, super energy efficient way to do it. Yeah. And so there was kind of a, a moment where I sat down with my wife and I explained everything and said, I have to basically decide, do I want this to be a, is this going to be my legacy? Right. Yeah. And I was thinking about leaving this very nice cushy government job where I got to play with quantum computers and do all this fun stuff uh, or do this instead. And for a while I ended up doing both. I basically worked two jobs throughout yeah. most of uh, 2021. <laughs> <laughs> it ended up being a kind of a double job thing. And they let me do this as a hobby on the side. And I had to sign a ton of paperwork to to make sure that they were okay with it. And there was no conflict of interest. But ultimately, I made that decision where uh, I, I ended up leaving MITRE and working for Rocketball full-time. And that was the end of 2021, beginning of 2022, right? Like, that was a lot more recent than I yeah. knew. Because when I was in the community, I remember there was a pull up at the beginning of January, 2022, where it's like, congratulate, congratulate John becoming a full-time team member. So, I mean, essentially I was full-time as well, but it just meant yeah. instead of doing this sort of a side gig, it would become my main thing. But yeah, it was at the beginning of 2022, we made it official. So let's take a step back. So that's sure. awesome. That's all really, really great and fascinating stuff. How, how was the Rocky pool community at the time? Like when you joined in 2020, uh, because you know, we'd had delay after delay. Nobody was really sure about what was going to happen for the Beacon Chain launch. Um, things were kind of up in there. How were you in the community at the time? Like, what, what, how did you see yourself in the community? Weird uh, is how I, would, I saw myself in a weird spot. Hmm. So 
at first I was in the same spot as everybody else in terms of like, there was a, an expectation for a launch date or for the next big thing, for example. And I was in the dark just as much as everybody else. So all I could do is really hope and pray. Uh, but as I started adding more and more stuff to the smart node, I started to kind of realize what it would take for a successful launch, if that makes sense, like what would need to get integrated and added and that kind of stuff for at least um, maybe both me and the team, I would say, but in different capacities uh, to be kind of like comfortable and happy with where we were and that kind of thing. And so over time, my place in the community kind of went from a avid believer that was just letting the dev team do their thing and praying that you know the the weeks and months of sort of sitting in the dark with your heads down would eventually come to fruition uh to taking a more engaged role in knowing how the sausage was made so to speak uh and it, it became more of a like i don't think it's going to be ready by this date for these reasons and i think we need to do these things first kind of deal so i was less uh surprised should we say when some of the the delays happened, so to speak. And I, I should highlight that like Dave was very important in, or Dave was very good in never announcing a specific date. And so yep. the, the dates were kind of implied by the community saying you should do it by this point. And then when they were missed, everybody got up in arms and Dave's like, I never told you it was going to happen this way, but yeah. I digress. The, yeah. the point was there was this expectation uh, that the community had put about certain things happening on a certain date. Or uh, like in the case of the the four article series that was coming out, you know, mm -hmm. why is Article 3 taking so long? Why is Article 4 taking so long? Like I, I started to gain a sense of understanding into why it was taking so long and what was required in order to make it happen before they could comfortably release it and that kind of stuff. So I started off as a vanilla community member and I kind of fell into this role where I was a bit of a liaison between the two. Uh, like I knew what the dev team was up to. I knew what the community wanted. And I kind of found myself in this weird sort of hybrid space of understanding both in relaying a lot of details about both. Like the community would ask me what the next big step was. And I would openly engage with them and say, here's where we are today. Here's what needs to happen. Here's what we're doing to get there. And kind of giving them the feedback that I think they may have been missing, or at least the insight that they may have been missing before. And yeah. I kind of fill this de facto community manager standpoint, we'll call it. That, that was not part of my no. job by any means. I didn't sign up for that. I didn't want that, but it just happened because I happen to live in trading a lot and that's where everybody yeah. else lives. And so naturally they would ask me questions and I had inside info, so to speak. So I could relay some of that stuff while trying to be careful not to say things that I wasn't allowed to say. That's sort of deal. How was trading at that time? So there were different faces for sure. Um, I remember a couple of people that just don't come around anymore. Uh, trading at the time was, so for example, let me give you an example. I came uh, to Rocky Pool around the time of this illustrious entity known as Zero XCC, mm -hmm. uh, which is different. For, so there's another, there's an actual staker, a node operator named Zero XCC today. It doesn't have anything to do with the Zero XCC I'm referring to. Uh, yeah. That was just a shorthand for his full address, which is yeah. all we really knew him by. But uh, it was this one whale that had a lot of RPL and was basically just artificially suppressing the price as much as mm -hmm. possible, keeping the ratio down to like 0. 0.002 or something wow. like that, yeah. 002. So when he finally went out, 
all of us in the community were elated. We were ecstatic. And there were some old faces uh, like Zero was in there. Um, Shrimp was in there. Eat That Shrimp was in there. Toucan was in there. So there are some people that have been around since that long. Um, and I was considered the newbie at that time, right? Because I had been around for years or whatever. But at, at the time, basically, the community sentiment was anything we could do to help this project was a good thing. And it was a it was still positive and active and vibrant the way that it kind of is today. Uh, so not a lot has changed in that respect. The people were different, some of them. But the community has always kind of had this air of this sort of uplifting. Let's help both Rocket Pool, the protocol and the Ethereum staking community at large. Uh, let's help them flourish. Let's do our thing. And every time one of these major events would happen, like Xerox CC finally sold his last batch. And so everybody knew this was the sign to start going in like crazy and just watching it skyrocket after that. Cause yeah. we had all been waiting for this moment or this, this clown would stop suppressing the price, that kind of thing. That was a lot of fun. And then sort of the, the doldrums of the 2020s and the 2021s, just waiting for some news and that kind of stuff. Uh, people were still in good spirits. They were making jokes at the team's but you know they were keeping it lighthearted and stuff the the salt was kind of at a minimum i would say which was nice it was good to see a productive community that could uh take things in stride essentially and once we did have some news to release they would get all excited and that kind of stuff so the atmosphere hasn't changed since then the people may have but the atmosphere has always kind of been this this good inviting welcoming community that uh, i have come to love yeah so yeah. um i've heard from other people that um, one thing that you don't talk about much is just how bullish you are on RPL the token and yeah. how that was kind of fomented in that early part of you being a community member before you became like a contributor and the team member. Yeah. How let, Let's talk about that a little bit because I wanted to talk to you about this for a while. You don't have to say anything that you're not comfortable now that you are a team member, of course, but like what sure. kind of like Zero released his uh, RP, right? Like in the beginning of, middle of 2020 i think it was oh mm -hmm. yeah something around that time um how like how was that an experience for you for the community at that time how was how was it being around that time the the arpit specifically around so, that time? Like other, th other things too because i wasn't in the community at the time so if you want to point towards other things that got you bullish in that period what was happening <laughs> so there's a little bit of inside baseball uh as a member of the development team responsible mm -hmm. for maintaining the smart note stack, which is again, the liaison between the contracts and the users. I am very privy to a lot of the details about the inner machinations of what's going on with the protocol and things like that. Not all of them. And I should highlight this because I think there's a perception that I know everything that goes on and I don't. Uh, and that is, that is intentional is by design because mm -hmm. I've learned to kind of segment uh, and, and only, only do things that matter to me that I can influence and that I'm good at per se. Yeah. So like the business development side, I'm hands off. I don't have anything to do with that. I don't want to have anything to do with that. It is just spending extra cycle in on me, that kind of thing. But from a code perspective and from a, we'll say, uh, general like Ethereum ecosystem uh development perspective so i'm talking about like the all core devs and meetings with the all core devs and the, the client teams and that kind of stuff from that perspective specifically the protocol if you will uh i 
I knew early on that we were onto something and that if we did it right and we played our cards right, it was going to be a big deal. And it was going to take some time. It was going to take years before we got there because we had a, um, we were off to kind of a late start, mm -hmm. even though it was by design because we wanted to make sure we did this right. Right. Yep. And we just had to wait for uh, parts of the Ethereum protocol itself to, to allow what we were trying to do. Yeah. So even though that was in play, um, and a lot of people were like kind of aware of it, but not really. I got to see what we were working on, what we were building, and what the grand vision was, so to speak. So my bullishness is different from everybody else in that <laughs> respect, or at least some people in that respect, because a lot of people are looking at the uh, the tokenomics of like RPL as a token itself, not as a project, but as a token, and kind of how it relates to what the project is trying to accomplish. And they're doing all this theory crafting and economics and stuff that I don't understand, but they were drawing conclusions from uh, a very economic perspective. And all I'm thinking about is the protocol. I'm in it for the tech, right? So to speak, yeah. it's, it's the, the phrase I guess thrown around, but it's very true in this case. So I, my bullishness, coming back to your question, my bullishness has always been on where the protocol is, where it's going and how much potential it has if it fully realizes that kind of thing. So I was bullish way early on like when zero xcc went out the price was around 0 0.002 that ratio uh, was 0 0.0023 or whatever it was as low as it got i knew that we were onto something and this was our opportunity and so i ended up shifting a sizable portion of my conventional um like stocks in bond uh reserve into rpl uh, and I, I let it sit there for a long, it's still sitting there. It hasn't been yeah. really touched in a while, except for like, I think I sold a little bit to make a mini pool, which, yeah, mini pool, you know, yeah, yeah. forgive me, I apologize, but I wanted we, to make a mini pool. We forgive you. Yeah, <laughs> that kind of thing. So my bullishness has always come from that. But to your original question, what was the community like at the time? Um, I had a little bit of this inside knowledge and I shared it with some of the community, not all of it, but some of it with the community, uh, especially in the trading channel. And Zero picked up on it and he started asking some more questions and getting some more details and formulating in his mind this, this whole investment thesis of like where he thinks the protocol and the token are going to go accordingly and stuff. And so then he published ARPIT and he had teased it a little bit, but when he published it, the numbers were insane, like mm -hmm. legitimately cannot believe my eyes kind of stuff. Is, it, is this real? Is this actually real? He published it and uh, he threw it on the ETH staker form and ETH finance and stuff like that. Yeah. And the response was what you would expect from a typical pump and dump, for example. Like the, the price doubled or tripled or something. It spiked up to some insane number. And then immediately dropped back down as everybody was pretty much trying to front run everybody else who had heard the news and stuff. And it, it kind of like settled down. Uh, I forget exactly where it was, like a 0.4 or 5, something like that. Mm -hmm. There was there was a good ratio yeah. uh, where it settled back down, which was considerably higher than it was before, uh, which I thought was funny. I mean, I, I was able to take advantage of that a little bit, but not too much. And I thought it was interesting how a simple, like uh, uh, an article in a forum post can change things that much, depending on your timing and stuff. That was definitely a lesson to be learned. And it has made me wary of this entire space. So anytime I see something spike up, I get suspicious, right? Mm -hmm. But what that also did was bring on a lot of community members that we didn't mm -hmm. have before, introduce people to Rocket mm -hmm. Pool that didn't. So LFO is a perfect example. I remember LFO came in after uh, the ARPIT first dropped and started asking a lot of good questions. And at the time, 
uh, he seemed like a very insightful member of the community. <laughs> since then, we, we have learned otherwise. <laughs> but yes, at the time, he was asking good questions and things. And so he seemed like uh, he would be a valuable contributor. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing so much. We love you, LFO. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so LFO, people like him came in. Um, I yeah. I heard about Rocket Pool the first time through RPIT as well. Like probably, I I remember, because I was in ETH Finance at the time, so I heard about 0xCC dumping. That's like one of my <laughs> yeah. first memories I have of Rocket Pool. But um, at the time, there were a couple of people talking about how this might be a really bullish opportunity to buy into Rocket Pool at this point. But I didn't know what it was. I was like... ETH maxi at that point just buying ETH and nothing else that was the only thing that I was into like I'd never touched any other protocol tokens or anything like that so it's really interesting that you you were like kind of on the other side of that you know like on the on the inside instead of the outside yeah when RPIT 2 came in that's when I was like okay this like this really does make sense and now it's time for me to get in so what was that period like between RPIT 1 and RPIT 2 and like how was the community changing because you know we were staking hadn't gone live even though Beacon Chain was running um what was it like what was that like so I remember it took some convincing to get Zero to do ARPIT 2 in the first place. Like at first he didn't really want to. Uh, and I he feels the same way about 3 right now. He's like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm done basically. Yeah. Uh, and 2 is, is sort of like 1 plus better numbers and more accurate estimations and more intelligent or more insight into what we were doing and stuff like that. Yeah. So for a long time, the space between 1 and 2, as I recall, uh, was, I'll say it was slower we had this this massive uh spike of growth with one a lot of people were interested in the protocol interested in the community and not everybody stuck around some of them were here for a short time just to check things out and it wasn't going fast enough for them so off they go to whatever other investment but some of them did uh and we we it was kind of like a slow burn is what i would call it this this whole time we were really heads down in development land uh, and so I didn't get to spend as much time as I used to with the community doing like shit posting and trading or whatever, yeah. right? That kind of idea. Uh, because I was actually busy with two jobs and one of them was trying to change the landscape of proof of stake forever. But um, I I definitely remember this was the time uh, where we kind of took a little bit of a step back as a, a dev team and let the community do a bit of kind of like managing themselves unless they got really out of hand but for the most part they uh they stayed on board and you know shout outs to cron the the unsung hero of the rocket pool community the yeah. the ever vigilant moderator who is constantly making sure that uh things that rules are followed and people are safe not getting scammed and that kind of stuff in our discord cron did a lot of work i mean he still does do a lot of work but back in the day he was doing a lot of work to yeah. make sure that we didn't have the, the same automation tools that we did now yeah oh man that was tough but i i definitely uh remember things slowing down a little between one and two and when two finally came out and zero had basically taken his thesis and, and added the extra numbers and provided more value and stuff, there was another uh, little spike as things go when he launches these things. It wasn't as pronounced. It wasn't as much of an event as the first one was with this massive influx of people who had never heard of the protocol before. Because at the time when ARPA2 came out, I think a lot of people had heard of Rocket Bull. Mm-hmm. Like it had sort of established its name at least as a thing that people were aware of, even if they didn't understand fully yeah. the, the mechanics of it, but they, they were familiar with the idea and the brand and that kind of stuff. Mm. 
So uh, it was it was slower at that point. That was basically when we were heads down building stuff. And then when RPA 2 finally came out, we were uh, getting ready to start to reveal some of the fun details and things. So how how was it in that period after the Beacon Chain launched and you guys still didn't have, you know, a Rocket Pool wasn't live on Minute? It, it took nearly a year to reach that point. What was yeah. that like? How was that because you were working? Well, that's with- that's a long time. That's a year. So, I mean, yeah. I can cover all of that stuff. We can kind of go through some of it we've talked about already. Yeah. Are you asking from the community's perspective or the well, no, your perspective, perspective too? Like, you know, was it okay. disheartening? Was it encouraging? Were you like, did you have this idea that look, we're working towards doing this right, so it doesn't matter, or was it more like you know, um, it's just taking longer than it should do? Like, you know, what I'm trying to ask, like, how was the the um, the morale in the team? How was the morale in the community? Sure. Um... I'll try to tackle this from a couple of different perspectives mm. since you asked a lot of questions there. Yeah. But let me see what I can do. So the time between Beacon launching and Rocket Pool, the protocol launching. Uh, we So there was a period, I would say, between Beacon launching and Rocket Pool launching of like five months, I want to say, uh, from December to April, mm. where... The dev team was just Dave and Jake. None of us had really gotten on yet. It was just those two guys. And as as efficient and as uh, performant they are at writing code, they're still only two guys, right? And having a dev team of two for a protocol of this size is uh, it's not enough. I'm, I'm just going to come out and say it. Like having two people is not enough. That's why we have six now. But yeah. Having two at the time, like Dave was responsible for doing all of the the marketing and the the website stuff, the the medium stuff, and then uh, Jake was doing a lot of the contract stuff and the smart note stuff. It's like it's just being spread way too thin, and I think they realized that. So when Beacon was first launched, there wasn't a lot of um, what's a good way of saying this? I don't. It, it wasn't ready yet, and I think they knew it was not ready yet. And with the development team that they had, they knew they needed to onboard more people to get this working. Now, there wasn't a huge bit of pressure on the team themselves to release this thing right as Beacon launched, because in order to do it correctly, as you say, right, yeah. in order to uh, make it as permissionless as possible, and, and granted, there are still portions of it that are not, but that, those are, you know, uh, shortcomings in the protocol itself in order to make it as permissionless as possible they really had to wait for this uh, amendment or extension to the way withdrawal credentials work on the beacon chain so uh, at the time you had to make this uh, separate set of credentials they're called bls credentials basically that's what solo stakers use uh, and we as rocket pool or the protocol wanted mini pools which is the notion like we have of a smart contract essentially acting as a uh, manager so to speak for the validator that's on the beacon chain they wanted that thing to be the withdrawal address and for that to work that would mean the ethereum protocol would need uh, to be able to accept a smart contract address on the canonical ethereum one at the time it was called ethereum one but the execution layer that blockchain it had to be able to accept that as the withdrawal credentials. And so eventually when the mechanics are figured out, they didn't know how at the time, but eventually uh, the validator, when it wanted to exit and get its balance back would send 
the balance to that smart contract address on the execution layer. We needed that uh, for Rocket Pool to launch. This is way before I was even on the team, right? This was yep. just how the protocol was working. Uh, we could not launch without that. Launching without that would basically mean that there was a trusted custodian that acted in your stead that would be the withdrawal credentials, essentially. Yep. And that's where things would go. And so there was kind of this, this point where they had to make a decision. Do we launch like that just mm -hmm. so we can get market share early uh, and then we'll decentralize later, so to speak? Or do we wait and do it right the first time? And Dave's ethos has always been, we will wait as long as it takes to do it right the first time for a reasonable amount of rightness, as, as yeah. right as we can get it without delaying for like five or six years or something. And so he wrote up an article that basically said, look, we know that we said we were going to launch at this point right after the beacon chain, but because the protocol won't let us do this whole, what's called 0x01 now, for those in the know, basically using a smart contract as your withdrawal credentials, because it won't let us do that, we're not going to. We're going to wait until that's in play, and we're going to build around what we think it looks like, uh, and then we can talk about launching after that. But we, we want to make sure that there's no central custodian involved in this kind of stuff, right? Because it's just, it's a, a bridge too far for us as a decentralized protocol. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So they pushed it back at that point. And I think people were a little disheartened at hearing that. There were some that said, yep, understandable. You know, I'm in it for the tech too, or uh, I, I understand the ethos behind why you're doing this. I'm a decentralization maxi. This is the right call. So be it. You're going to lose some market share from people that want to start staking early on. Yeah. Whatever, you know, launch when you're ready. And this this stuff is in play. And then there were people that were just like pumped my bags and were like, I okay, this is obviously a disaster because Rocket Bull is like delayed for months now or whatever. So I'm out. I'm leaving. See ya. And so when he did that announcement, there was a bit of a dip in things, which is to be expected. And those of us who were kind of like avid believers in the protocol and have this five to six year vision and were uh, sort of chasing the next big thing, we just sort of kept along. He sat on it and said, this is understandable. We knew it was going to happen. Let's keep on building. No surprise there. And so we did. Then I think when uh, when the team was first assembled as it is today, it, except for Maverick, he came later, uh, but it was uh, Dave, it was Langers came on as the GM. Uh, I was formally hired as sort of like the smart node and the arm, uh, the arm ambassador is what I named myself. Nice. Uh, and we had Kane come on with the uh, help with the smart contracts and Nick came on to help with the website and things. When the team of five were assembled in April, uh, we took a look at where we were, where we needed to be, what needed to happen, that kind of stuff, and sort of laid it out. And at the time, I think we were targeting something like July uh, for the launch of this. Uh, it seemed like a good opportunity to get everything done that we needed to do, that kind of stuff. Uh, and as time went on, so like May hit, we realized that there was a lot that needed to get done to keep this as decentralized with the minimal amount of reliance on the Oracle that was possible. There were a lot of times where we said, let's, how do we do this thing? How do we do that thing? It's like, oh, we'll just make the Oracle DAO do it. And there were a lot of times we had to push back and say, we don't want the, to give the Oracle DAO more power than they already have. They yeah. have too much. And we're trying to, to lower that. We're not trying to boost that. So anytime uh, something came up that involved like a hard decision where the Oracle DAO wasn't required explicitly to do things, we ended up going that way, even at the cost of time. Right, that, that whole idea. They're there uh, as a necessity, not as the the foundation, a pillar of the uh, the protocol, if that makes sense. They're there Absolutely. because the execution layer can't read the beacon chain and things like yeah. that. Yeah. 
And so July came by and as Kane was looking at the smart contracts, there was a lot of dependency on them that he wanted to get rid of and said, we need to do this better, essentially. If we're going to maintain our stance as the decentralized protocol, or at least decentralized as much as possible, this permissionless staking thing, we need to do better. And there was a period during that whole thing where some of it went through a lot of reinvention, a lot of like, let's let's re-architect, let's do it uh, correctly this time, that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And it was around that time that we, once he had finished, uh, he said, this is good enough that we can get it audited. And obviously we're going to get it audited by like good, reputable, respectable companies. This will not go live and actually be responsible for user funds until like good engineers have looked at this thing. And that's when uh, we had an audit coming in from Sigma and we had an audit coming in from Consensus Diligence. I think Mm -hmm. the, the third one, I don't remember who did that one, but um, I can look it up afterwards and I'm sure it'll come to me. But that one came later. Um, So we just had the the two at the time. And we were looking for feedback on Rocket Pool in its entirety. And it's a big protocol. It's not like two smart contracts. There's a lot of smart contracts. There's a lot of code. It's very complex. And so they needed like this whole kind of like roadmap, this guy, this this diagram of how everything interacts so they could get a handle on what it was intended to do versus what it actually did when they come to the audits and that kind of stuff. That process took a while. It took like months for those audits to, to go because we did some back and forth with them. And it finally came down to like, okay, this is every artifact that we possibly have. This is everything you need. Go forth and conquer. And then they came back with a bunch of stuff and we fixed and that kind of stuff. But that whole process took a long time. So I think when we kicked that process off and I realized how long it was going to take, that's when I knew like we were we were going to be in this for a while. We we're probably targeting like an October timeframe kind of thing, uh, which we we hadn't really conveyed to people, but auditing is a, a massively laborious process on both ends. It really is. And it's it's not as simple as like, you know, bundle up a zip file, send it off, wish them the best of luck. And then two weeks later, you get a thing back. It, it doesn't work like that. It's it, it's it's involved for both. So there's a lot of like communication between their team and our team about, clarifying questions, for example, if they need some help with something uh, or understanding how something interacts with something else versus how it's supposed to, that kind of stuff. There's a lot of back and forth involved in these things. And uh, I believe when October rolled around, so we had at this point, basically, we got the first audit back. It looked good. We launched our Prater test net. That was really exciting. People actually being able to stake with this and stuff. Uh, And from my own perspective as a smart node engineer that was really useful because I finally got people's feedback on this. Like we had launched a Prater testnet. Uh, I had built the Grafana dashboard as a way of like people being able to monitor and maintain their nodes, that kind of thing. And we, we started collecting a lot of like user stories, a lot of, I like this. I don't like this. How do I do this? Making things better, making it easier for them to use, uh, finding the pain points, that kind of stuff. And so while the audits were going on, because the audits only really touched the smart, uh, the smart contract side, I was working with the users in parallel. And that's when things started to pick up a little bit. And we had more hope is once we launched uh, the Prater test net, we knew that like we could do these things in parallel and we could still be productive instead of sitting on our thumbs and waiting and stuff. So Prater, for me in particular, was this uh, very high point in the history of the protocol, especially within the community, uh, because it became less about just sort of like idly sitting around and trading, waiting for something to happen, discussing the future of the token's price. 
to actual node operators doing actual things, giving actual mm-hmm. feedback and that kind of stuff. And uh, realizing that there's a there there. We actually have a thing and it is working correctly, at least on the test net. Yeah. And, you know, due diligence aside, uh, it's going to be a while before it gets to mainnet, but we know that this is not a rug pull. This is like a real thing that they have built and it actually works well and that kind of stuff. So that was a high point for me. So I spent most of the time from when we launched Prater to when we actually launched on mainnets, just building and, and taking feedback and acting as that kind of like community manager liaison, uh, specifically on the smart node side of things and that kind of stuff. So that was good for me. Like it may have been frustrating for the community because the protocol hadn't launched yet, when launch, when made that, that kind of stuff. But from my perspective, as an engineer in the smart node, we basically did because people were using my stuff right? They were taking the thing that I had made and they were actually applying it in a meaningful capacity. So for me, we did launch essentially as soon as we, uh, we put Prater out there and people could start using my stuff. Mainnet was, it was ancillary. It was nothing like Mainnet was no different from Prater because the software was exactly the same, just the chain ID changed, right? That's, that's the only difference for me. So I, as soon as uh, we launched on Prater, I was basically like in the zone and that's when I knew that we had a real thing. And I kind of got a feel for the team dynamics as well of how they uh, respond to events, how they plan on doing things, how they architect and design and do the roadmap and all that good stuff, which is admittedly different from what I was used to in my previous life at MITRE. Uh, but it it's it works fine. I mean, it is a, it's a more, we'll say, Uh, it's it's a faster iterative process is the best way I could say it. So at MITRE, things were very kind of like waterfally. They were very slow and methodic. And there was a lot of uh, time that was spent exploring and organizing and stuff. It wasn't very agile. It wasn't very fast. And this is quite different. Uh, this is very fast. Like we will make a decision and we will implement the decision that day, for yeah. example. Or like I will do it in the middle of a standup. I'll say, hey, do you guys mind if I do this thing? And they're like, Sounds good. You should do this thing. So I do that thing. And before the standup is even done, I've got a proof of concept ready to go. And sometimes, admittedly, this is a personal fault, but sometimes trading will know about something that I did before the team knows because I'm so excited and just want to share it with everybody, that kind of thing. But that was that was the spirit of, uh, to come back to your original question, that was the spirit on the team's side and on my side of uh, what that whole pre-launch period looked like. We were pretty excited all the way up to October uh, which is when we were originally slated to launch. It was like October 6th or something, right? Uh, we had deployed the contracts to mainnet. They were audited. They were vetted. They looked good. Everything seemed to be fine. And then like the day before we launched, uh, I was getting ready uh, basically to celebrate. I had a little party hat and everything going on. I was going to do this little like in-person thing here. Yeah. Okay. And I got pulled into a team meeting and they said, so the Immunify bug bounty thing that we had set up, uh, somebody submitted a critical vulnerability to it. And I was like, okay, that doesn't sound good. What does it mean? And they were like, what do you know about how deposits work on the beacon chain? Hmm. And I mean, I know about as much as the average person, you deposit your ether and you get a validator for it and life goes on. I yep. Said, yep. What do you know about doing multiple deposits and like front running other deposits using the same withdrawal credentials or the same pub key? And I I didn't know anything about this at the time. I hadn't looked that far into the spec. And that's when they explained to me the notion of what we call the withdrawal credentials exploit now, which is in a nutshell, um, the beacon chain is engineered, the spec for the beacon chain is engineered such that when a user 
makes a deposit for a specific validator pub key, the first deposit uh, with whatever withdrawal credentials they have, those are with the withdrawal credentials canonically for that pub key, regardless of what the deposits afterwards happen to say. So with our withdrawal credentials, we want to make a validator with the mini pools address as the withdrawal credential. So the mini pool gets the funds when you withdraw. And there was an exploit where somebody could essentially front run that by knowing what the validator pub key is in advance, and they could submit their own withdrawal credentials with their own like 0x00 or 01 address or whatever, basically not the mini pools. And that would become the canonical withdrawal credentials for that validator, regardless of what Rocket Pool did after the fact. Yeah. So in a sense, essentially they could steal all the user funds, right? 16 ether. That's a lot. Yep. Uh, so th this is like a game-breaking bug. This is like death of the protocol. If somebody realizes they can do this and there's no ramifications for stopping them, it's GG. It's the end of things. So like, yep, we're launching. We were launching tomorrow. We are no longer launching tomorrow. That is simple. We we cannot go live with this bug in play. Yep. And as we did a little bit more research, we found a couple examples of this being exploited in the wild on Praetor, at least, or on Piermont at the time. That's the, the testnet that was being used. Uh, the, the auditors missed it. We missed it. You have to have intimate knowledge of how the beacon spec works in order to even know about this in the first place, which thankfully the uh, person that submitted that bug bounty was aware of and did yeah. so. So, I mean, we, we paid them out accordingly. I think we paid like double the amount of mm -hmm. what we usually pay for these critical bugs just because it was so big. Yeah. Uh, and they went back to fixing it. And that was that was the lowest I think I've ever been of course. when that happened. We are one day away from launch. The culmination of all this work, that's not even my main job. It's just a side hobby kind of thing that I'm doing. And I really, really want to see succeed. And we have a critical game breaking bug. That means we have to stop. That that was probably as low as it's been for me. Yeah. Um, we took a moment to kind of collect ourselves and said, okay, now that we have postponed, we're not launching on this date. Fine. Let's fix it and see how bad it gets. And that's when we were kind of thinking i would say that's the first time we ever had some like legitimate time pressure just because we knew we were this close to launch and stuff uh and so we had to both look at how correct a thing was a solution for this was and how it impacted the, the timetables i mean it didn't rule the timetables by any means but it was a factor at least in this and we it didn't take kane and i long to kind of come up with the same idea as we were discussing this back and forth and we said the problem is that you've got information on the beacon chain that the execution layer doesn't know about. We have a mechanism for shuttling information from the beacon chain back to the execution layer. And I know you do not want to add more power to this mechanism, but in this case, I think it makes sense to do so. Uh, this this could be one of those exceptions. And so within like a day or two or whatever, I did. I got to do a write-up. I, I was very excited about doing the write-up because I love this technical writing kind of thing uh, that explained what the the attack was how it works fundamentally and our solution for it and the solution was we're going to add a responsibility to the oracle dao mm -hmm. that means they check basically when a node deposits uh, it checks the withdrawal credentials on beacon for that pub key and within the execution layer deposit contract itself to see has this exploit been taken advantage of? Has somebody front run the, the deposit for this pub key? And if so, we get to do what's called a scrub. And where did the name scrub came from? Uh, the name scrub came from essentially uh, rocket terminology, NASA terminology, again, coming back to this guy, because this kind of rules everything that I do, right? We were talking about rockets and stuff and what it's called formally when a launch is canceled because of weather or for whatever reason is it's called a scrub. Yeah. 
So we went with that. And that's how we introduced what's now called the scrub check. And so if you are familiar with Pole and you've heard of this notion of the scrub check before, that's what we're doing. We're checking for the withdrawal credentials exploit. It Has took us- been scrubbed? On mainnet, no, no one's been scrubbed. We, we check occasionally just to make sure, but nobody's been scrubbed and no one has any invalid withdrawal credentials, at least not last time I checked. But on Praetor, there are several. So you can definitely tell that there are people that are trying to do this, seeing if the scrub check works, and it does. So they don't try it on mainnet because it's a lot of capital to lose. Of course. Yeah. Um, so then we so, got a date for withdrawals? Oh, for mainnet launch? Yep. So the, like once we, we had this thing ready, uh, we kind of scrambled and talked to our auditors and said, we need to do some contract changes. Sigma, would you kindly take a look at this and make sure that it works properly and that it does what it's supposed to do? So we had to get the fix audited as well. And by the time I had implemented everything, we had tested it, it was audited and checked and went live and we had pushed everything. At that point, we knew like, unless there was another world ending apocalyptic kind of bug, this was going to be it. Yep. And we had already planned on doing this whole stage launch process where we open up to 10 and then 30 and then 60 validators and so on and so forth. And so I would say, and you can actually see this on the, the live stream we did with the uh, Superfizz and the ETH Staker friends when we actually launched the protocol. I would say that moment where uh, I entered the stream, I kind of knew like, this is it and there's no stopping it at this point. We're going to go live. Yeah, it's it's going to happen finally. There's no like last minute emergency scrubs or anything. It's going to happen, uh, and I am going to be looking at the first set of mini pools that get created, and that was the highest point, probably one of the highest points, right up there with the launch of Prater. Uh, less butterflies and more excitement. Prater, I was definitely nervous about because I was this first time people were seeing this stuff in the wild, yeah. and. The uh, the mainnet launch was more like, I know the code already works because I've been working with it on Predator. Mainnet's not any different, so there's nothing to be nervous about from that perspective. It's mostly, let's see what the market conditions do, because this is the first time we've ever tried it with real-life gas numbers as opposed to Predator numbers, which were all totally useless, right? Yeah. And of course, we launched at exactly the same time that ENS did their their launch. And so yeah. gas was in the 500s at that time, which was so big. Yeah, we ran into it. So Geth, for example, which was the client that we, the only uh, execution client that we supported. Yeah. Geth has a built-in fail safe that says, if you try to spend more than one ether on gas for a transaction, <laughs> we're going to assume that you mistyped your gas price and there's a there's like a bug in your stuff essentially. So we're not going to let the transaction go through. And during the ENS and the rocket pool launch, gas prices were so high and mini pool costs were so expensive that we actually ran into that bug. And people wow. who were trying to make their first mini mini pools in the protocol ran into this whole like you're trying to spend more than one ether on a transaction so i'm not <laughs> going to let you do it problem uh, and i i think fizz tried to make the first one and he hit that and yeah. it was just like soul crushing to see because we didn't know if that was a bug in our stuff mm -hmm. or if it was a bug in something else and eventually later we learned that it was a, a not a bug per se but a safety feature in yeah. geth it's just to these weird network conditions but we didn't know at the time so we we're seeing a bunch of failures coming through and I was looking and trading, seeing a bunch of people talking about them. And I was like, oh my God, what have I done? Like, it's not as easy as just a swap of a chain ID. So everything is falling apart. And then we started seeing them actually come through together. Like many pools were actually coming through. Deposits were actually happening. And I realized, okay, this was some transient nonsense related to super high gas conditions. It's fine. We can ignore it. 
and life went on and i i slept pretty well that night i think knowing that that it was working and we were in good hands so i hope that is a good answer to your original question it's a very long one but you asked for like a year's worth of stuff i want everything i want everything yeah um so now we're live on mainnet we go through the stages of launch everything's good um what are some things that have happened over like last year uh, since we've been on mainnet that have really like caught your attention or things that you really wouldn't like to talk about, like in the community, in, in the protocol, like everything. Things that I want to talk about as far as, okay. So I would say a couple of things come to mind right off the bat. Yeah. Uh, the first thing is one of the features the community asked for over and over again uh, was the ability to claim whenever they wanted, as opposed to having to claim at this uh, this checkpoint interval yep. every 28 days or whatever. And that's for both simplicity and for tax purposes, excuse me, for tax purposes and those kinds of things. Totally understandable, but the contracts weren't engineered that way. They were really hard. And one of the things I am, well, I guess we'll talk about that later, but one of the things I am quite proud of uh, when it comes to answering that particular user feedback is championing this request and bringing it up to the dev team a lot and saying like, this is a thing that people are asking about a lot. We need to do this. And uh, working with Kane specifically to come up with the Merkle tree system that we have in Redstone now, which exists. So yeah. if you guys have been around for a while, you know, you used to have to claim constantly. And now we've got this Merkle tree thing that lets you claim like aggregate a bunch of intervals together and claim whenever you want. That didn't used to be a thing. That wasn't the, the way Rockable worked before. So that was very nice to see. Uh, being able to kind of like take that feedback and come up with the solution and design it and implement it and test it and do the full life cycle of that stuff. That was definitely a high point. Uh, the the 2E is <laughs> definitely a good one. So when Rockable first launched, the entire service config process was a series of sequential questions, like an interview asking you how you want to set this thing up one step at a time. And if you messed up a question or if you wanted to change your mind, you'd have to control C out and start the entire process over again. And it was just like, oh God, I don't want to do this. And it's like really hard for people to use, especially people that are not familiar with CLIs or with Linux or anything like that. I remember they just want something edit. interactive, right? I remember making edits to those, like, was it YML files or something? Like, what was that? Text Manually file? screwing with the, the YAML files. Yeah. yeah. And like yeah. things that the, the smart node just could not do. Like, mm -hmm. and to his credit, before he left, Jake had written some documentation on, like, if you're trying to do something that the smart node config process is not designed to handle, like, for example, hybrid mode, uh, like running with external clients. If you want to do that, here's how you do it. You go into this config file and you edit these particular settings and then you save it and you try it out this way. It was like, it was a process, like hybrid yep. mode was really hard to set up and stuff. It was not user-friendly. And the TUI is another thing that came from like basically user feedback coming in saying, I want to do this, I want to do that. So I want the config process to be easier. What can we do? And so for, short of like- For those who might not know what, sorry, what the TUI is, it's when you run the config command on your, on your node and just the process of like being able to edit things and start things just makes it a lot more streamlined, right? Like, oh, is there more to it as well? Nope, it's just the service config thing. So when, when you yeah. run Rocketbolt service config right now and that little interactive dialogue mm -hmm. pops up, 
that's that's the two-way, the so, terminal user interface. That's right. So that's it helps you change like your execution clients, your lets you change your MEV boost options, lets you change like whether you want to join any other add-ons, any of that kind of stuff. So it made yeah. it a lot easier, a lot more intuitive. Um, and, and it's all in one place as well. So it's definitely um, a much better user experience. So that's really Well, cool. thank you. Yeah. We have worked hard to make it so. Of course. The, the TUI took like four months to build mm -hmm. and, and actually develop and test and stuff. And yeah. it was it was a chore, but it was a labor of love because it was something the community had been asking for so much mm -hmm. uh, that there were all of these kind of pain points associated with the things as they existed. So from the, the mainnet launch kind of to where we are today, the TUI was another big one that came out of it, one of those massive updates. Uh, another one... Less so, but still from a development perspective and from kind of a networking perspective, shall we say, it was helpful, uh, was the addition of the other execution clients. So Nethermind mm -hmm. and Bisu in particular, uh, basically interacting with those teams saying, we're going to support more than just Geth out there for the sake of client diversity, because there's this massive push that happened um, during the the period between our mainnet launch and kind of where we are today, yeah. where client diversity became a huge issue, right? and. Yeah. Prism had a super majority on the beacon chain and get that a super, it still does have a super majority yeah. on the execution layer and that kind of stuff. So pushing for client diversity to help in the case of a kind of like critical client bug uh, so that the beacon chain can survive became a, a big part of that. And I remember we had a lot of debates internally in the team about how to handle that uh, because there's a, there's a very strong sense of we want to be truly platform agnostic. So you can run this on whatever hardware and software you want, as long as it works and it will functionally work the exact same way. We, yeah. We're not biased towards any client composition, uh, but at the same time, we don't want people making Prism notes because Prism has super majority, right? So it was this like this very weird back and forth and ended up coming down to... Uh, during the config process, we put a little disclaimer saying Prism has a super majority. Here's where you want to go to learn more. It's got all these fun pie charts and stuff. Are you sure you want to do this? And give them the choice so they can if they yeah. so choose, but they have to actively choose to do so, that kind of mm. thing. We ended up doing that. Uh, from I'll say from a slightly different perspective, one of the things that I have always found interesting and kind of lamented uh, from a team's perspective, but applauded from the community's perspective was this notion that the community has developed even early on of we want a thing and the dev team either doesn't have time to do it or uh, they have other priorities and so they're not going to get to it in the time frame that I want. So I'm just going to do it myself, that kind of thing. Having the community basically build around the protocol uh, so, for example, the graffiti wall writer is mm -hmm. a good example of this, right? Uh, basically, I didn't have the cycles to make a thing that could let people take in graffiti that could change dynamically based on a source uh, and write to beacon chain graffiti wall. Yeah. Uh, but some of the other community members, uh, Ben and Rami Rand, and shout outs to Rami Rand, who uh, is kind of the reason I got into this protocol in the first place because he built the original arm implementation that i could then take apart and kind of like nice. figure out stuff so he, he's the reason that i'm even working here in the first place so shout Amazing. out to you Romy. yeah uh, but they they essentially built this uh capability that interfaced with the rocket pool system that's the smart note system uh interface with the clients and allowed dynamic reconfiguration of the graffiti since all the clients had this capability now that kind of thing and i liked it so much 
that I was like, I need to make a thing in the smart node for community built add-ons, essentially things that I didn't write, but I, I helped kind of like introduce into the smart node in sort of an official capacity. I didn't make a thing for this. And so we redid the entire smart node architecture to make it more add-on friendly, more compatible and modular in that respect. So you can turn it on and off and that kind of stuff. And there was minimal requirement from the, the actual my side, from the smart node development side mm -hmm. to work with these. So the graffiti wall writer is a good example. Uh, Rocket Arb, which I know is very popular today, is another fantastic example of a community built thing. And mm -hmm. so this one is Ramana basically came by and said, there is an opportunity that we are missing out because there's such a premium at this point on the RETH price where anybody who spins up a mini pool has the potential of capturing some of the RETH back, some of that uh, premium, because they're opening up space in the deposit pool temporarily. And it's currently being taken up by uh, by bots, by MEV bots. And so we should give them that. So he built this entire thing. This entire, like he built smart contracts for it. He built like flashbot loan systems and all this stuff, like mm -hmm. an entire thing, a whole suite that would basically let you deposit and capture uh, some of that premium on RE in the process. So you basically deposit and get a really nice uh, bonus back, actually, say, for free. Yeah. And I, I I, have plans to work on an add-on version of that to make it official in the smart note, too. I have been asked by the dev team to belay that temporarily while they look at some ARB-related things that I cannot discuss at the moment. But yeah. uh, suffice to say, the interest is definitely there, and I would love nothing more than to make that an add-on. We actually had one of the Wonderful. community members proposed to make this an add-on essentially and then he kind of disappeared i have no mm -hmm. idea where he went so I'll, fine i'll do it myself <laughs> so maybe, that kind of thing but yeah, yeah seeing that and then seeing uh we just launched the gmc officially and we're taking requests for grants and bounties and retroactive stuff and seeing that come to life now uh and so we can actually like pay people in in some of the protocol DAO inflation some of the rpl for actually contributing meaningfully to the protocol as a community member and not just a dev team member but mm -hmm. also a community member seeing that kind of uh productivity come to light has been super super productive so uh, i don't know how i didn't mention this first but rocket watch right invis's bot mm -hmm. is, has become such a staple Yep. To the the protocol site, like to the node operator experience, having the channel where all of the events get listed, having the the commands for running like the smoothie command that you use regularly to see what the smoothie pool is. Oh, the smoothie yep. pool is a whole other thing that we can talk about, but yeah, as seeing all of that stuff like come in, it's just having the community build stuff, build tooling, build capabilities around the protocol to make life better for all of us is so awesome to see vgr's dashboard mm -hmm. right I, I cannot possibly name all of these in the time that we have but seeing all of the things that people have built come up around this that the dev team didn't build other people built it just because they're passionate about this project uh has been so awesome over the last couple of months since may or from uh the the time where we launched on mainnet to today just seeing these things spring up and i know that there is definitely more to come we're not at the end of it by any Excuse means me. we're still we're still early, right? Yeah. So to speak, we're still early. That kind of thing. Withdrawals aren't even out yet. Uh, so, I, I cannot wait to see what else comes out of this. So one of the things, Joe, that I've been talking about on Rocket Fuel a whole bunch of times is I think you're the most featured person on Rocket Fuel and more than anyone else. And Ooh. I think the reason why that happens is because, first of all, you give really good updates of what you're working on. And I've really enjoyed how that's developed Um from from you over the last year and like of course since I've been doing Rocket Fuel as well because it's a huge asset for the community. Um, I, I guess I'm not really sure how to ask this as a question. It's just some I'm, I want to take a moment to appreciate that because that transparency is so valuable for the community and it's something that um, is 
I'm not, you know, meaning to criticize anyone else or anything like that, but I feel like not just Rocket Pool, but in a lot of protocols and projects that are out there, there's always like that disconnect, right, between the what the developers are doing and what the community is seeing. So the fact that you bridge that, I think, is really commendable. And like, I know that I absolutely love it, but I think other people find that absolutely invaluable too. So thank you for doing that. Um, it's welcome. really, really wonderful. I know that it adds work to what you're doing, but it's it's really, really valuable for everyone. Well, so thank you for that. I, I, keep in mind, like I started as a community member, right? Yeah. I, I came to this project in the trading channel, essentially. And I have no intention of abandoning my roots, so to speak. At heart, I'm still a trading member even yeah. though I, I have more insight into things. Now I can't talk about it as much, but I do try to talk about the things I can uh, with yeah. that I'm I'm allowed to, to speak to and stuff like that. And it's always a delicate balance of not leaking any information. I'm not supposed to, that kind of stuff. But yeah. uh, from a development perspective, so like it's a lot of the stuff is there. I mean, it's on GitHub. You can see it in our pull requests. Uh, you can see it in the commits that we're doing. We, we talk about it in some of the other channels, like the governance channel or the research channel or those kinds of things. It's there. It's just not presented in a concise format in a way that people can see as much. And so that's kind of what I try to do is it's TLDR what we're up to uh, that's already kind of been released for people so that they can kind of see the sausage being made, so to speak. It's really cool. I really appreciate that. So one of the yeah. other things that you've been sharing recently and how the sausage is made is uh, your whole journey with like the... Rock, uh, the Raspberry Pi, the Rocket Pi, and then how that evolved into the Proteus. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how yeah. that journey has been and where you are now with it? Okay. So fundamentally, um, I mentioned early on that I had always been driven by this kind of like obsession with efficiency, right? And I'll bring this guy up again. Uh, when I built this thing, I actually wrote a lot of the documentation, the guide docs, essentially, uh, on how to set up one of these to work with Rocket Pool so you can actually validate for five watts or something. And later on, that was actually the source of inspiration for the docs site as it exists today. And that took like months to write, but whatever, that's fine. Uh, the Essentially, that came down to uh, I really wanted to encourage people to stick with this low-powered hardware because I wanted to try and make a difference and change stuff, right? Not just like pick up an Amazon server that was big and bulky or or go get like a massive server that you had to run in your basement with like a dedicated power supply, that kind of stuff. Like I just wanted people to stick with low power hardware. I want to make a, a, a dent in this whole like and play into the uh, the energy efficient ESO, ethos of proof of stake. You know, we've got this yeah. whole narrative going on that's like Bitcoin's the the Eiffel Tower and proof of stake is a screw or something like that. You know what I'm talking about? There's mm -hmm. like, there's this whole thing about how efficient it is. And I'm like, let's, let's do more of that. You know, let's make it as efficient as possible. So this thing before, uh, before the merge, uh, well before the merge, like way, way back in February of 2022 or whatever, I tried to put together a thing that people could get uh, that would essentially act as this, act in this capacity, act as a dedicated thing for Ethereum staking. Yeah. Uh, my first attempt at doing so after exploring was conveniently enough this. You see that? There's a rocket pie. Oh, wow. It's got the logo I've never and everything. I've seen that before. You've never seen Oh, you've never seen this. This is I've your first time. This, this oh, wow. is the only existing version of the rocket pie. Wow. The Rocket Pi is supposed to be a dedicated Raspberry Pi platform mm -hmm. that came preloaded with the smart node and everything you would need to run a node and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
it was essentially supposed to be a kit that I would bundle up and put together and give to people so that they could be stakers for five watts. That was the point of it. Uh, so I'll take this off and you can kind of see a little bit inside oh. there, but I've got a, a breakdown of the, the details. This is a special version of the Raspberry Pi. Close that. This is a special version known as the CM4, the Compute Module 4. And this is what it looks like. I've got one here, for example. Nice. This this is a Raspberry Pi. It's yeah. just essentially the same thing as what is in here, mm -hmm. but it has all the I.O. taken off of it. Yeah. So the actually I'll pop this off just so you can see it. Hang on a second. You find a good finger hold. There we go. So let me rephrase. This is a CM4. Uh, so it has the CPU here, it's got the yeah. RAM here, it's got the Wi-Fi chip and all that stuff. And then on the back uh, are these two 100-pin connectors that you put on this guy. This is called a carrier. Mm. And this is basically a board that comes with all the I.O. and stuff that this would need. So the original Rocket Pi was supposed to be a special version of the carrier that only came with the stuff you would need for staking. So like one Ethernet port a couple of USB ports, an HDMI port for output in case you wanted to like look at the node directly instead of using SSH, that kind of thing. And this would sit on that. And then I would build this whole like case assembly or whatever around it and ship it and call it the Rocket Pi. And you know, there's like the, the Rocket Pool logo and the Raspberry Pi logo because Rocket Pool loves Raspberry Pis because I'm the ARM ambassador. I'm an ARM enthusiast, right? Yeah. That whole thing. So I actually got fairly far into that process. Like I was designing my own carrier PCB. I was looking at schematics and specs for the various PCB uh, components that were out there, like the connectors and the that kind of stuff. I got pretty far along and I had to stop because of COVID, because mm -hmm. the chip shortage meant that these these things, these Raspberry Pis don't exist. If you yep. ordered one, you got put on a wait list for like two to three years yep. before you would get one. Uh, so this particular one you're looking at, my wife ordered this for Christmas in December of, I want to say, 20, uh, December of 2021. And I didn't get it until November of 2022. So like a couple of months Whoa. ago. Yeah. That's so incredible. it's just, it's straightforward. Like the, the rocket pie is dead. I can't yeah. make it because I can't source enough chips. So big. Yeah. And then the... Uh, then the Ethereum on ARM guys contacted me, Diego in particular, and he said, I I know you're interested in ARM systems and low-powered staking and stuff, and I know you had been paying attention to this thing called the ROC, the ROC 5B that a company called Ratsa has been making. Mm -hmm. I want to get you in touch with the Ratsa guys, and I want to get you a dev kit for it. And I was intrigued, and I was like, you want to get me like a board? They're not even in production yet. And he's like, I know, I want you to get a dev kit to play around with it. And I obviously, I said, yes, absolutely. Hook me up. Let's go. Let's see what we can do. And so uh, the Ethereum and Arn Arm guys did so. They hooked me up with the, the Rasa guys. And uh, after some discussion back and forth about what I'm trying to do and what I would need and uh, what kind of feedback I could provide as a developer and that kind of stuff, they gave me a dev kit, version 1.1 of the, uh, the Rock 5B, which I don't think I have one here uh, because they don't make it anymore, but that's okay. Yeah. We'll talk about that later. And essentially, from the time I got that thing in like, I want to say March or something like that, uh, all the way up to probably like early September, late August, something like that. I spent a lot of time profiling this board and exploring it from a hardware and a software perspective and figuring out 
what I would actually need in order to make this the rocket pie, essentially yeah. the the kit, the the thing that uh, was arm staking for under five watts that I could give to people as a, as a fully functional like smart node installed power supply ready to go. Everything is just turn it on, configure the smart node, you're good to go and stuff. And it, it became clear that the the rock was the way forward because they were making it. It was way more powerful than a Raspberry Pi, and I happen to have one that I can test with right now. That kind of thing. So I spent a lot of time essentially going through the iterations of the kits, the uh, prototyping the container for it, the case for it, uh, doing a bunch of CAD stuff, learning how to do CAD stuff that I would need in order to do this, learning the software, learning the hardware, learning all of this stuff. There's a lot that goes into it. Yeah. But at the end of the day, suffice it to say, here it is. Ta-da! Uh, there's there's my Proteus or one of this is the active cooling case that I like yeah. to tout a lot. It's got the, the fan inside. You can see That's that. So, so cool. There's my rock, and this is actually a Wi-Fi chip that I uh, got because some people need Wi-Fi. There's a fan on it. There's a, I don't know if you can see that, but there's a solid state at the bottom. You can't really see it. No, I can't see it. Yeah. So there it is. It is production level. And I I was confident enough in both this design, and I got yours over here, too. Yeah, show me. Oh, um, I took the front plate off of yours. There, there's your rocket fuel front plate. Yay. Let me see if I can get the uh, thing because I'm in the middle of some development with it here. That's this fine. is there we go. There's a fanless case, mm-hmm. right? Same idea. This is actually the aluminum that uh comes from Radson themselves. Yeah, and then there, there's your front plate. I was just doing some sizing comparisons and stuff there. Nice, but I got those two options there, and yeah, they uh, I was so confident in my like designs and things and i'm i'm running one on mainnet for real and obviously yeah. i'm, I'm going to do that to make sure that it works and i'm in like the top 15 percent of nodes or something so hey yeah. thumbs up there. but uh, i was so confident in this design that i i figured i would probably want to start putting a website together mm-hmm. uh, for like pre-orders or anything for for people to be able to reserve these things and i don't know how to make a website i am not like people are offering me squarespace and i'm like but i need a wiki for docs and things not just to buy it and fizz comes up and Fizz says, look, you need to use a Google form, all right? And just put the damn thing out there. Start taking these reservations. Make a Google form. It's the way to go. I will even make you a example so you can see what it would look like. And he did. And this was my first time ever, like, actually using a Google form in this capacity. But, it, you know, it's totally fine. Yeah. It works out great. And from a payment perspective, I was like, how do I handle people actually paying me? And Fornax, of all people, who is one of my respected community members, uh, that has been doing a lot for the smart notes, submitting a lot of pull requests and things. Forex and Long says, you need to take crypto payments because <laughs> like it's it's a no-brainer. Like don't yeah. even bother with yeah. the with the traditional banking system or visa or whatever. Just let me send you USDC, right? Let me send you RPL. And I was like, oh, of course, I have an address. I know how it works. You guys yeah. know how it works. You're staking. Sure. Why don't I just accept crypto payments? It's perfect. perfect. So that's essentially what I'm doing now is I have a Google form up and I, I take uh, payments over the Ethereum network, no middleman or anything like that. Just toss me some stuff and you have this. And I will even give you a, a special sneak peek here because um, I got to show this a little bit. Here is the orange. This is the Ooh. bright orange uh, rocket pool orange one that has nice. become so popular because I offer everybody. Can you see back there? The printing, yeah, it's printing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the print is done. It's actually got a case ready to go. I'll take that off. And I can see them on the shelf too. On the shelf is a bunch of these these cases ready to make. This is Super Fizzes. There you go. The first one to order. So you can see serial number 0001 there. 
Because the Superfizz is new and uh, pop that open. It's the same idea there. He doesn't yeah. have a Wi-Fi module, but same thing. <laughs> so I have basically been kind of like, I, I took a vacation, vacation, so to speak, yeah. <laughs> in the first week of January. And I have just been like machine gunning these things, just production line assembly, Beautiful. kind of putting lots and lots of produces together. I've got like 12 of them done now and I'll get nice. more done later. So, yeah, so what what what's the status now? Like you you release this Google Doc and people form, sorry, and people um submitted like what how many do you have submitted? Like how when are you gonna start shipping? What's what's the haps with that? Let me see. How many do I have at this point? I have at this point. Oh, I have to restart Firefox. One second. Shout out to Firefox. Anybody who uses that, by the way. Give it a second to load here. Uh, at this time, I have 108 that have been pre-ordered. Nice. So I told everybody, like, we're going to do this in waves because I'm just mm -hmm. getting started here. I've got 48 to ship in the first wave. If you're not in the first wave, you're welcome to reserve. I'll get to you once the first wave is finished, but I'm going to prioritize them first, right? Yep. 48. And I got 108 so far, which means 60 people are willing to kind of hang out and say, yeah, whenever you got one ready, just let me know. And ship it along that'll be fine so i mean the the response has certainly been good i i have more than i was expecting i was expecting to deal with like i don't know 20 or 30 of these yeah. things in the first month or so and i've got 108 so and it there's definitely i i'm noticing a lot of the um we'll call it the networking effect because every time uh fizz or cecil or whoever tweets about this thing with a picture i get a bunch more pre-orders nice. by people i guess who just hadn't seen it before or something yeah and i'm not doing any marketing for this because i don't have the cycles to do it this is of just course. me as a hobby hey, we're right? doing it for you so yeah i i there's no like i'm not advertising anything i'm not taking out banners or on websites or whatever it's literally just like here's a link ship it around if you want to <laughs> i'll get to it as i get to it kind of stuff so, so what, when are people in the first wave going to get them so the last things that I had to do uh, were essentially testing the power supply and the Wi-Fi card. And those were two things that I was able to do uh, earlier this week. So I know they work. I was waiting for the shipments to come in on Monday. There was a, I wouldn't call it an anomaly, but we'll say there was an issue with the way the power supply was working. So my original intent was to ship each of these things with a Canna kit uh raspberry pi power supply that can do five volts at up to three and a half amps so it's 18 watts total which is plenty for this thing it takes like mm -hmm. 12 during actual syncing like 10 to 12 the highest most of the time it's less than that and then once you're done syncing and you're validating it takes five like yeah four to six watts takes around five so an 18 watt power supply is way in the green and i was going to ship that with everybody but i got a lot of international attention there are people from Australia, from the EU, from Brazil, from the UK, all over the place that want one of these things. And their power plug is different than what I have. And the Canakit one only comes with a US plug. So either I ship a like travel adapter with it, or uh, I find a different power supply that is easier to use from an international perspective. Ideally, I would have one that has like the the, the kind of like pull in and out clippy thing that you can change the adapters with, right? Yeah. Ideally. And so I was looking along for adapters that could satisfy that need. And I found one, one, one adapter that I thought was absolutely perfect in the gamut of all of the adapters. Uh, I, I can go get it for you in a second if you want, but essentially that's it okay. is a, it's a 45 watt USB-C charger that's designed for the Nintendo Switch. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and it uh, has USB power delivery capability. And when I got that thing and tested it out, I learned very quickly that the Rock has a kernel bug, a software bug that prevents power delivery from working correctly. Long story short, uh, power delivery needs to get an answer within two seconds of once it tells you here are the settings I support, it needs to know which one you want. And if you don't tell it within two seconds, it turns itself off because it thinks you've timed out. The rock needs to load the kernel in order to respond. The kernel takes longer than two seconds to load, so it times out constantly. Uh, so they're moving it over to the bootloader, but suffice to say, it, it's got a bug right now. So what they recommend in the meantime is instead of using a power delivery capable supply, use a dummy supply with like a nine or 12 volt or whatever. And so that's what I actually got. Here, I'll show you. Ta-da! Nice. Traditional boring old power brick yeah. that just happens to be like a barrel plug and then this barrel plug has a USB-C adapter onto it. Uh, but most importantly, this has one of those one of those yeah. interchangeable deals that comes so this is the us uh us one there's an eu one an nice. au one uh, there's all kinds of different things and so this satisfies the bill perfectly so now that i know this works i have ordered a shipment of 50 of them <laughs> and uh, this is my life now i've ordered 50 of these things you're the they guy from the math here. problem you know with the yeah Joe, exactly Joe has 50 uh, power supplies and then he yeah so that's great um so when are people so, getting Sorry. Yeah, so to answer your question, with all of that context out of the way, the hard problems have been solved. I'm not confident that everything works. Uh, these will come on Friday, which means I can start shipping probably at the end of next week. Is wow. what I'm the 20th is when the first uh, wave starts going out. That's I'm going to so do exciting. the U.S. guys first, yeah. and then I'll take a look into the EU and the AU guys because I need to look at logistics of international shipping and things. And the community has actually been quite helpful in giving me some options and doing that as well. That don't Wonderful. cost an arm and a leg. So we'll get there. But we're going to start simple, active cases, U.S. suppliers. There's like 25 of them or something like that, or U.S. customers. If you have a U.S. address and you're in the EU, that's totally fine. I will ship to any U.S. address right now. And once that is done, uh, then I can start working internationally. But the 20th is the date that I'm planning to do the first couple of shipments. So how much is a box? So these are 575 Okay. And these are... 575. They're the same nice. thing because it ends up the fan in here costs yeah. about the same as the aluminum panel or the aluminum case does in this case. So they, they even yeah. have to be about the same. Uh, you can get, if you want one of these vanity plates, like I showed you, this mm-hmm. kind of customized deal, you can get one of those. I charge an extra 20 for that just because I got to run it through my laser engraver. Mm-hmm. And if you want a custom color, since this is all 3D printed, uh, you can do that as well. I'll print in any color you want as long as you just got to pay for the filament. Uh, so people have mentioned like basically combining forces and getting like five or six people to do the custom filament thing. And that way they only need to pay like six bucks each because the filament's 30. And I'm totally fine with that. I don't care as long as I get the filament for it essentially. Yeah. So it's 575 plus a little bit extra if you need the Wi-Fi card or the vanity plate or filament. That's so cool. And they'll be ready to go in two weeks. Are you going to be um, showing them at Denver or anything like that? I have been specifically asked or commissioned rather, I've been commissioned to make a orange rocket bull Proteus for Denver to show it off. I know I, uh, Fornax has a grant in place uh, to do a like workshop in the build week. I'm not going to be there for the build week, but he wants yeah. to do one uh, where he shows the process of like assembling one of these and running a staker on it and getting the smart node all set up and that kind of stuff. So uh, if I can ship him some extras 
then I am certainly willing to do so. It's just logistics again, because I think he's in the, the or he is in Brazil, I want to say, but he's an EU plug. Yeah. So we'll, we'll work with the logistics on that, but yes, there should be some of these guys hanging out at East Denver. Awesome. That's so great. And then uh, will people be able to talk to you about this at uh, East Denver? Like what, what's your, what's your plans for East Denver? Yeah. People can talk to me about whatever they want at East Denver. My plans are to hang out at the booth and, and talk to the community and people that are interested in the protocol or interested in smart node operation or stuff, show it off. Like we're going to have one of these actively there to show off the smart node and the whole configuration process and whatnot. So we can certainly do that. Um, I'm, I'm largely just going to be like at the booth willing to talk to whoever about whatever, I suppose. That's absolutely amazing, Joe. Um, It's been absolute delight chatting to you about all of this. Is there anything that you want to add to what we've talked about uh, or maybe something that we've missed? I know for sure there's so many things that we've missed. Yeah, this is a movie, isn't it? It's like two hours long. Jeez. Um, Is there anything to everybody who stayed this long? Oh, yeah, people people love these episodes. Like, I'm sure that a whole bunch of people are watching up to now. So we we can, yeah, This it's really great. Like, people really love hearing from people in the community. So thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, your ideas, like all the things you're working on and the, of course all the work that you're doing too so um that's absolutely wonderful but like i said is there anything that you'd like to add uh if we have time there's one more thing absolutely, i would like yeah. to share yeah so i'm going to go in a bit of a diatribe and i hope somebody finds this useful <laughs> i could talk about the smart note i could talk about uh the the protocol i could talk about where we're going with all that but there are other venues for that like you guys already know about that stuff and you know where to go to find that kind of information so i want to talk about something a little a little more personal uh, and kind of bring it back uh, full circle to the beginning of this. And this is something that I hope you guys can do as well. And I could probably link to it uh, later on, but I mentioned I have a desk and under the monitor in that desk is a bunch of the stuff that inspires me and, and encourages me to keep on going throughout the day and stuff like that. And I wanted to show one of these things off real quick and kind of explain what it is and where it comes from and why I have it. And hopefully it can serve as a good motivator Uh, or at least an interesting story for for some of you guys that are out there. And I wanted to show off this. Okay, what is that? What are we looking at? This this is a 3D printed replica of a Babylonian clay tablet known Mm. as YBC, Yale uh, Babylonian Collection, YBC 7289. Uh, Essentially, this is a, a student's homework. This is math homework for a Babylonian student, and I think it's like uh, 1500 or 1600 BC or something, like 4,000 years ago, basically, right? Uh, You would hold one of these things in your hand. So I'm going to hold it kind of like weird at a weird angle like this. You would hold it in your hand uh, with, with one hand, and then you would sort of transcribe stuff on the other. So this is the markings here. Uh, this is a way of uh, recording numbers. This is actually like how we would do numbers. This is how they did numbers. And this is what is known as sexagesimal, base 60. Oh, wow. So over here, this is the number 30. It's got three of these arrows pointing to the right. This is an approximation for the square root of two over oh. here. So you've got the square on one side yeah. is 30. And the goal is to figure out how long this diagonal is, if this is a square, if this is a size 30. So this is the square root of two, which you need. So you do this times the square root of two gives you this number here, which is like 42 point something or whatever, 42.4, I think. Uh, And essentially, this is just some student's homework and he's doing 30 times the square root of two. This is important from a historical perspective because it shows that the Babylonians 4,000 years ago had 
a good uh, understanding of geometry and they had a good understanding of the square root of two and they had a really, really good approximation. This is uh, close to the square root of two to like the sixth decimal place nice. or something like that. Massively accurate. Yeah. Anyway, I thought, so understanding this whole thing is super cool, but why do I have it? Why does it matter in the first place? I have this because this is a student's homework. And when the student did this, when they actually put this clay tablet together, they had no idea that in 4,000 years, some joker with a 3D printer in his office was going to make a replica of his homework so that he could study sexagesimal or base 60 or anything like that. Like totally just off the cuff routine, I'm going to do whatever. And now I have one of these. And that kind of demonstrates to me, well, I mean, first off, it demonstrates that 3D printing is an amazing capability <laughs> yeah. and laser scanning and stuff like that. But most importantly, this serves as a little reminder for me that even the little things in life, the, the minutia that you do on the day-to-day -day that you don't give a second thought, that stuff does matter. It does have an impact because you never know butterfly effect style when something you do is going to have profound consequences dozens, hundreds, thousands of years down the line. Like this guy was a student and wrote some routine homework on a stone tablet. And now I have one. And I think about that all the time, right? Everything I do matters is, is kind of the lesson that this thing teaches me. Everything I do matters. This is YBC 7289. I encourage people to go print one of their own and serve as a reminder because don't take anything for granted. Basically everything you do matters. So this was a kid book. who basically lost his homework, right? <laughs> it was just like, I lost. I don't homework. know if he lost it, but at some point his homework was shoved in a vault and then buried in sand for 4,000 years and then uncovered by archaeologists. And now I have a print of it. But that's a pretty good excuse if you lose your homework. Well, you know, future archaeologists will find it. Right. That's fantastic, Joe. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Um, I have so much respect and love for what you do. And it's been a true honor to... Um, to spend this time with you and talking about your journey and um i'm going to be spending time with you in denver standing next to you at that booth because ain't nobody moving me away from there there so, you go I'll, I'll bring the uh little thing just for you and you can have it that's wonderful thank you so much for that it's and nothing. yeah um and whack thank you for doing let me just give you a quick shout out as well for not only rockets um rocket fuel but i guess just being such a prominent member of the community so i'll i'll stay Specifically, uh, rocket fuel is something that I have come to leverage heavily because as the the things with development have been have getting kind of heavier and heavier, I can't always spend time in trading, keeping track on everything. And so it's it's a, a ritual to go through and look at rocket fuel every day and see what I have missed. And there are always things that I have missed. Yeah. Uh, so it's super useful to have that. And I, I, I definitely missed you during the holidays when you took yeah. a break and stuff. That was tough, but we got there. But yeah, and thank you for doing that as well. I mentioned like that the the rocket pool community is so thriving and so busy yeah. that even me, who like I literally it's like a full time job for me, right? I sit and read trading for hours every day, and yep. even then, there's stuff that I've missed. So it's just it's impossible for people to be on top of everything. So you know, this helps some people get some way there, but even then, there's a lot that goes into it that I can't even cover. So. I'm, I'm, I enjoy it. I really love doing it. And I'm so happy that people find it valuable and I'm going to keep doing it. So it's, 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 it's something that I'm really enjoying. So yeah. Thank you for, yeah. thank you for the appreciation. Please do. Yeah. 
So, Joe, thank you so much for everything. I will see you in Denver, but long before then, I will see you in trading where we all, right. all hang out. So yeah. have a great week and um, thank you once again. You too. Thanks for hosting. And uh, thank you guys for watching this. Like, what is this? A two hour episode or whatever. Two hours and six minutes or thereabouts. Yep. Yeah. Sounds good. Wonderful. Thank you, Joe. Bye. Bye, guys.